morning. As we do this, we'll see that Jesus is a satisfying Savior. Jesus is a satisfying Savior. And as we do this, we're going to see this central truth that Jesus is more than enough so you can safely trust him. He is more than enough so you can safely trust him. And really, we really have two contrasting pictures here in our text this morning as we see Herod, kind of the way he leads, and Jesus in the way that he leads. If you re- read with me in Matthew 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and it pleased Herod. So that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. We'll pause uh, right there. Well, the Herod of our story today is one of four Herods that we see in the New Testament. So you see the word Herod or the name Herod quite a bit. It's not always the same guy. Uh, the first time we're introduced to Herod is in Matthew chapter 2 at the birth of Jesus. That's Herod the Great, this Herod's daddy. Well, when Herod the Great died, he, uh, he divided up his territory among three of his sons. There were, there were other children, but for whatever reason, these were the sons that, that got the territory. And as he did this, uh, each one of them kind of got a section or a province, province of Israel, Palestine. And so Herod the Great ruled over the whole thing. And then this Herod, our text calls him a king, but that's actually, I don't know, a little bit of an exaggeration. He called himself a king, but he wasn't quite a king. He was more like a governor, but he liked to be thought of as a king. In fact, at one point, he travels to Rome to uh, beg the emperor, can you make me a king? And the emperor's like, nah, you ain't a king, and he doesn't make him a king. So he's a little bit egotistical. He's also a weak and ruthless ruler. In fact, in the book of Luke, when, when Jesus is sending a message to Herod, he doesn't go and talk to him, but he sends him a message, and he calls him, you sly fox. So this guy is deceitful, he's cunning, he's killing people, and he's also, as we'll see, a pretty immoral man. But one thing that characterizes him is a sense of insecurity in his leadership. His father was an able administrator, a, a relatively powerful king, of course, under the, the control of Rome, but, but he himself was known, he was called Herod the Great for a reason. He built uh, forts, he built monuments, he was known for being a, a great builder and a, f- a fairly capable ruler. Now, Herod, this Herod, the Tetrarch, isn't quite that way. Tetrarch just means a fourth, which just means he kind of has a fraction of what his daddy had. So he's kind of like, all, he's like, you know, little Herod. And so this Herod is a little bit different. And this story that we have here is a look back in time. So we've got Herod hearing about Jesus, that's happening now, and then Herod thinks back in time to his relationship with John the Baptist. And as he hears of the ministry of Christ, it reminds him of John. And so we've kind of got two things going on. You've got like the present, and you've got Herod remembering what has happened before. As we track through this passage, this and what we're going to see next, there are really two contrasts that we see pretty clearly. One is the curse of weak, fearful, ungodly leadership in the life of Herod. And the second is the perfect provision that we get from the perfect leader, Jesus. 
And so first, as we walk through this, we're going to see the curse of weak leadership in verses 1 through 12. We haven't heard much about Herod's family since the birth of Jesus, and what we see today isn't exactly an endorsement about how great this family is. So when Herod died, he, he divided up the land, and as he did this, he gave two main areas to his son, Herod the Tetrarch. So not only is this guy egotistical, his dad was too, and there were multiple sons named Herod after him. So there's Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas, uh, Herod Philip. Well, this is Herod uh, the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas. And so he gets two main areas. And so if you remember, right in the north here, we've got Galilee. This is where Jesus' ministry centers, all around the Sea of Galilee and in this region called Galilee. Well, if you travel to the south and kind of the east here, you see the word Perea there, almost like Berea, which is in the upstate. Well, this is Perea. And so in Perea, this is the main area where John the Baptist ministers. Well, in the providence of God, both of these areas, these are the two areas that Herod was left by his dad. So first, kind of relatively earlier in his rule, he sees the ministry of John the Baptist in the southeast down here in Perea on the other side of the Jordan. Well, within a short amount of time, he hears of this other great prophet, Jesus, up in Galilee. And so he reminds him because both of these men in the providence of God minister here largely in Herod's territory. Well, one thing that we see in the life of Herod consistently is that he is governed by fear. So allegedly he's in charge, but his fear rules him. So when he hears about Jesus, he freaks out. Now, John the Baptist has already had a powerful ministry in his territory, but now he hears about a second powerful prophet, and when he hears this, he begins to see ghosts. He feels like John the Baptist is reincarnate. Now, as you know from what we've seen, he's killed John, but it's not an execution. It's actually a murder. He kills him in violation of the law. No trial. He brings him up, and he executes him. So in verse 2, he says, this is John the Baptist. He's come back from the dead. Well, Herod knows it can't be John. But like you, sometimes you see things that aren't there. You're freaked out, I don't know, by those palmetto bags or by those alligators. And you see them when they're not there. Herod sees John, even though John's not there. So he feels like John has risen from the dead, and now he has these magical powers. What's happening here? Herod's conscience is chasing him. Like a hound on a scent, our conscience will pursue us. The only way to deal with our sin is to run to Jesus with that sin. If we don't deal with it at the cross, our sin will chase us to the grave. And sometimes sin that we feel like we've left far in the past as we age in life, our memories come flooding back. And as those memories come, the memory of our sin comes as well. The only way to deal with that is to run to Jesus for forgiveness. Proverbs 28, 13 tells us that whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. So the reminders of Herod's sin echo in his paranoid brain. But we also see corruption in this family. Well, verse 3 introduces us to another character, Herodias. Now, Herodias is Herod's niece. So, so, So keep this in mind. So you've got Herod, and then you've got his niece, Herodias, who's related to him in the the generation above. Herodias is also Herod's brother's wife. Well, Herod desires Herodias. So Herod and Herodias at one point travel to Rome, and as they're there, Herod convinces her, you know what, let's both divorce our current spouse, and let's, let's marry. And so he convinces Herodias to divorce his brother, 
so she can marry him. She's about 40 years old at this time. This also means that the girl we see dancing here is his great-niece. Okay, so you've got quite the, quite the pattern going on in this family. So the dancing girl is, is the great-niece, and she's also, ironically, uh, Herod's uh, stepdaughter. So, so you've got this kind of weird, twisted family tree. I mean, did you follow it all there? It's kind of this, like, this twisting, amalgamated, incestuous family. It's pretty bad. So it's people like stealing aunts, uncles, nieces for other people and, and marrying them. And if you didn't follow it all, that's because it's pretty twisted. And you've got people, it's like, like, I don't, it's like the old uh, throwback country song, I'm My Own Grandpa. It, it's, it's like there's this weird, weird, twisted relationship going on in this family. Well, the story is dominated by Herod, by Herodias, by her daughter. And Josephus tells us her name is Salome. We don't see it here, but other sources tell us that's her name. And, 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 and these marriage guests. Yet the courageous message of John the Baptist amongst this twisted, incestuous family rings like a clarion bell. Verse 4, John the Baptist had been saying to Herod that it was not lawful for him to have his brother's wife. Now, this is no surprise to anyone. It's not cool in any culture, and it was clearly a violation of the law. And yet Herod had done this. Now, the language here is significant. It wasn't just that John said one time, hey, you ought not to do that. John's out in the wilderness, and in addition to preaching to all of the the people out there in the wilderness, he's shouting at the king, you can't be doing this, over and over. The emphasis is that it's something he began to say, and he kept saying. I mean, there are celebrity scandals long before TMZ, and this is a first century celebrity scandal. So John the Baptist, courageous prophet, is an equal opportunity offender. He's going to preach to the, the poor people there in the wilderness with him, but he's not leaving out the king. So he's preaching about the king's sin. He confronts gross public sin by the powers of that day. So this kind of confronts us with a question. Do we confront sins in our culture that require courage to confront? You see, what we see here is that true Christian courage is willing to confront even uncomfortable sins. There's an offense to the gospel message. There's the rescue in Jesus, and yet there's the offense that runs contrary to the course of our hearts and the course of this world that says we must repent. Well, in addition to some fearful people here, we've got some really good manipulators. If you've ever known someone who tends to be paranoid, you know also sometimes manipulation goes along with that paranoia. And we see this especially in Herodias here. You know, if you track any Disney movies at all, you know you don't want to be the stepmother, the wicked stepmother. And Herodias is pretty much the wicked stepmother in this story. She doesn't necessarily have the power to execute John, but she's manipulating behind the scenes. So she used her own sexuality to get what she wants. And now, frankly, she's going to take her teenage daughter and use her as well. One of my favorite sports radio personalities is a guy by the name of Colin Cowherd. And he has, I don't know, various things that he says, but one of the things he says, there are two things in life that get men to do really stupid things, sports and pretty women. And that's what we see here in the life of Herod. He starts doing something that he is going to immediately regret. So we know this girl's name is Salome, and she's probably somewhere between the ages of 12 and 14, maybe maybe as old as 16, 17, but she's probably kind of a young, early teenager. Well, she comes out and she dances, and when the text says that she pleased Herod, that's sort of a euphemistic way of saying it turned him on. This is an evil man. 
Then Herod promises in verse 7 to give her anything that she asks. And Mark tells us, he says, up to half my kingdom. It's a little bit like uh, King Ahasuerus with Esther in the Old Testament when he promises to give her anything. And it's here that we again see Herodias' plot. But this time Herod's probably drunk at this party. Obviously, he's amped up. And Herodias has been plotting for this moment, asks for the head of John the Baptist. Well, the minute Herod promises this and he hears this, he knows he's been tricked. And he immediately regrets. Our text says he was sorry that he'd said this. But what governs Herod? Is it conviction? Is there any sense of commitment to his subjects? Is there any sense of accountability to a higher power or an ethical compass? No, he's fearful. Verse 9, now he's afraid of his guests. Verse 9, because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He knows it's wrong and he does it anyway because he's afraid. He has John the Baptist executed and his head brought in on a platter. And of course, John's disciples respond with grief. So in verse 12, John's disciples do the same thing that Joseph of Arimathea does for Jesus. His disciples came, verse 12, and took the body and buried it. Christians grieve loss together. I mean, this man has just died, just been killed for his message, and yet his followers likely at some risk to themselves because John's not a popular face at this point. They come, take his body, and be sure to give him a proper burial. Herod's a weak leader. Like all weak leaders, his greatest fear seems to be being seen as weak, being seen for what he is. So his fear leads him to break Jewish law, execute John without a trial. Well, Herod's weakness stands in stark contrast to John's courage, doesn't it? I mean, John's the one who dies here, and yet he's the one who courageously confronted sin. Yet Herod, a weak leader, I mean, John's confronting the king, and the king shies away from a teenage girl's request. Loving confrontation is one of the hardest things for anyone to do. It's just hard. It's your kids, family, friends, and yet can be one of the most important things. We tend to have two approaches to confrontation, one of which is to avoid it. Like, it's just easier not to deal with it, to run away from it, and so sometimes we do that. Sometimes we enable you know, our children or a friend because it's easier not to deal with it. The other thing is because we maybe don't even know how to deal with it, we deal with it sinfully, sometimes by blowing up about it, sometimes by gossiping about it rather than hitting it head on. So how is it that we can do this? How can Scripture help us know how to do this? One is, remember, grace teaches us something about ourselves. And the first thing it teaches us is that we are sinners in need of grace. Jesus taught this in Matthew 7. We saw this several weeks ago. He says, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log in your own? It's like we all, and he's not not talking in generalities. He's saying, "This this is what we're like. We've all got this big old giant beam sticking out our eye, and we're we're speck hunting in other people's eyes. And yet what we need to do is remember that Jesus nailed our sin to the cross, that our sin died there, and it's our sin that nailed him to the cross. And we remember that it's my sin, not someone else's holding Jesus there. It has a way of humbling us, doesn't it? We tend to get worked up and fail to remember that our sin, not someone else's sin, is our biggest problem as in my sin, not someone else's sin, is my biggest problem. You see, a proper view of grace humbles us as we think about this sort of thing. 
First Peter teaches us that love covers a multitude of offenses. First Peter 4, 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. But often the things we get worked up about aren't clearly sin. And sometimes the sin that we get worked up about is the speck in someone else's eye, and we've got this giant beam sticking out our own eye. We also, it's helpful if we remember what our sin cost Jesus at the cross. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we're healed. It cost Jesus pain. It cost Jesus torment. It cost Jesus the rejection of his father. My sin did this to him. Helps us to remember what our our sin costs Jesus. There's times when we should let things go, but there are times when we must confront. This is because the cost of sin is so great to Jesus that we got to hate it like Jesus hates it. So when we must do this, how do we do this? We kindly, calmly, and like John, courageously speak truth in love. Ephesians 4 tells us, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Christ. So you take truth in love, and if you take the, the truth out of love, you just get a bunch of squishy marshmallows who, I don't know, are indefinable and aren't worth much. On the other hand, if you, if you take the love out of truth, you get a bunch of angry, harsh people. And that's why Paul says these have to go together. When you're motivated by love for God, the truth in his word, not by a sinful irritation or frustration, then you're finally ready to have the conversation. Well, 75 years ago this week, June 6, 1944, that 160,000 Allied troops had been prepared and were ready to invade Normandy. Uh, by this time, there were many uh, kind of diversive, by diversion tactics by Allied troops, and Eisenhower decided this is the time, and in the providence of God, these troops began landing on the beach. Young boys, some as young as 15 years old, 16, 17, 18 years old, pile out of, bo- pile out of boats and find themselves facing uh, German guns. And as they arrive on these beaches there in France, they're confronted with fear. You can imagine the bullets flying at you, you know, as, 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 the, as the gate on that, that boat drops into the water and you're, you know, you're running to the back of the ship instead of running out. And these boys face this fear. And it's kind of a docudrama, but uh, HBO put out a miniseries called The Band of Brothers. And one thing that, what that this does is it demonstrates for us the value of healthy, courageous leadership versus paranoid, kind of insecure leadership. In this, uh, in this series, you have Captain Sobel, who's paranoid and insecure, and you've got Lieutenant Winters, who leads his men by example. And you see there the healthy leader inspires and leads by example. And in contrast to Herod, who's a paranoid, insecure leader, we've got Jesus the perfect leader, and we'll see him in verses 13 through 21. Provision from the perfect leader. We'll begin reading in verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he, and when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. 
Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. They took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about five thousand men besides women and children. Well, the feeding of the five thousand is a well-known miracle. It's the only miracle of Jesus that appears in all four Gospels. You can imagine something like this would impress itself upon you when you saw a miracle of this scope. And Matthew sets up the story in a unique way. Each writer tells it kind of somewhat differently with their own perspective on it. And Matthew sets up the story to highlight the contrast between Herod's fear and Jesus' care for others and compassion. So verse 2 connects here to verse 13 because we've got verses 3 to 12 that are looking back in time. So we've got verse 2 and verse 13. When Jesus hears Herod is worked up, he withdraws from there. Now as he withdraws, we see that Jesus has a ministry of compassion In verses 13 and 14. Now, you know this. If you give yourself and care for a loved one of any sort, maybe, I don't know, a little baby to someone aging who needs your care, serving other people can wear you out. (laughs) And Jesus is ready to step away. He steps away from the crowds. They're all gathered around him. You've given all you had. You've given yourself to the care of a loved one. It's like, I got to breathe. I need a break. We find yourself in that kind of care where you feel like, God, I don't even know how I can keep doing this. You find yourself exhausted and worn out, you're in good company because Jesus got tired too. He needed rest. So in verse 13, he gets away from the crowds to recharge. He went to a desolate place by himself. Jesus is worn out. He's exhausted. But when the crowds find out where he is, they follow him there. Now, there are two ways that we can respond to people like this. Jesus needs a break. Kids, that's it. I'm done. I'm checking out. I need a break. So Jesus needs a break. Imagine that, I don't know, you've got a, a bunch of people milling around. It's like, they're like, I don't know, little kids clawing at mom in the kitchen like, I need help. And she's like, I don't have enough hands. Well, there are two ways that we can respond in this moment. The way that, you know, we're ten- we tend to respond, we're tired and worn out is, enough. You know, we're, we're frustrated and we're angry. Or, in this moment, rather than you know, focusing on my frustration... And my weariness, if I, if I can put myself in the shoes of the person who needs the help. If I can put myself in the, in the, in, in the shoes of that, that person who needs my compassion. And in understanding and empathizing instead of, so what we tend to do is we view this through what I'm feeling right now. And if God helps us kind of transform what we're feeling to empathize with what that person is feeling, we can interact with that person with compassion and care. And that's what we see from Jesus here. So in verse 14, Jesus sees the crowds and he responds with compassion. He heals their sick. I mean, Jesus is a loving shepherd even when he's pretty much emotionally and physically empty. And when there's not a lot in these people to attract his care, he still cares. I mean, humanly speaking, these people could be frustrations or obstacles. And yet Jesus sees them not as obstacles, but as opportunities for his care. He's moved with, the text says, with 
compassion. This is a word that means he feels it deep in his gut. It's like that moment when you see someone get hurt and you wince because you feel it with them. In this moment, Jesus is weary, and yet he feels the pain of these people. But just feeling their pain doesn't change the fact that there are some practical realities we've got to deal with here, verses 15 to 17. These people don't just need compassion, they also need food. Now, there are a lot of people here who are hungry. Jesus and his disciples are in the middle of nowhere. He's taught into the evening. It's late. So his disciples come to him in verse 15. They're worried about time and they're worried about food. There are thousands of people here with nothing to eat. Now, the disciples' request seems pretty reasonable to me. Verse 15, he says, send them away to buy food for themselves. Makes sense, right? There are 5,000 people. What are we going to do for these people? So they see a need. Their vision for ministry is that those people meet their own need. Yet what they failed to realize is that standing before them is the God who created the universe who's capable of meeting any need. Their vision doesn't include the compassionate care of Christ. But rather than making things better in verse 16, Jesus kind of seems to make it worse. He's like, you give them something to eat. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) We can't feed 5,000 people. John's gospel tells us that to feed a crowd of this size, it would take 200 denarii to feed all of these people. Uh, This is an entire year's wages for for the average worker at at this point in Israel. So in other words, in in our world today, the average yearly annual income for a person in America today is somewhere around $50,000. This is a $50,000 meal. Uh, we, We don't have that kind of money. We don't have that kind of food. No one there does. Jesus commands his disciples to do something they cannot do. It's impossible for them to do this. It's impossible for them to feed this crowd. You see, sometimes the compassionate care of a loving God to us feels uncaring and unloving because we don't yet understand the true capacity of God to meet our needs. In this moment before Jesus acts, I think the disciples are probably frustrated. Jesus, you don't get it. Yet who doesn't get it here? Disciples. And sometimes God seems to direct us to do something that feels impossible. And we're faced with a moment like this. In those times, God sometimes will intervene in a way that just surprises us and shows us his grace in a way that we could never see apart from a circumstance like this. And what happens when that happens? God gets the glory. Can you believe God did that? This is not something that we can do. And so now Jesus does his miracle in verses 18 and 19. He has the people sit down in groups on the grass. Like Psalm 23, the shepherd leads the sheep to green pastures. When he tells them to sit down, these words are, are, more, are more personal than saying, hey, y'all be seated. It's the word that you use when you invite someone to pull up a seat at your table. He's saying, y'all sit down for lunch. We'll, we'll feed you. We got you. you sit down at my table. He's asking them to pull up a chair. Now, he asks them to sit down for a meal when there's no food. It's kind of an audacious thing to do. He then prays over five loaves and two fish and begins passing them out. And as he does this, the disciples begin to share the pieces with the crowd. You ever been hangry? I mean, it's like, I need food and I need it now. I mean, my wife knows that. Look, when I walk in the door, it's like, I need food and I need it now. 
Well, you've got people who have been here all day. They have nothing to eat. It's late in the day. It's evening, we know, by this time. Imagine if you're taking a few bits of food and you're going to pass it out to something like eight to 10,000 people by the time we add the, the women and kids here. This takes a long time. It's not like Jesus, I mean, he could. I mean, he stilled the storm immediately with the word. He could have just said, and it's there, but he didn't. This requires patience and perseverance on the part of these people. Imagine you're at the back of the crowd, and you're like, what's going on up there? And, and they're, they're, they're giving out free food, but there's only a little bit of it. I mean, there's, I mean, this crowd is hangry, and there's potential that this can blow up. He could have sort of zapped the bread, and it's on everyone's plate, but he didn't do that. His provision isn't like that. It requires patience on the part of the people sitting there. And yet, in spite of the time this takes, in spite of the potential tension in this situation, his miracle, no less, provides satisfaction for everyone there. Well, it's, I don't know, what's this, 80, eight, more than 80 years old now, but I grew up watching a, a version of Robin Hood uh, that, by a guy named Errol Flynn. Now, probably y'all, a lot of y'all don't know who that is, but he's like, you know, early 20th century actor. This thing came out in like 1938. And for whatever reason, that was up there, I don't know, with Swan Princess, Beauty and the Beast. We watched it over and over again as kids. And there was this line in this, in this movie where uh, Robin Hood and his men, they, they capture all this stuff and they have this giant feast. And so these men have been, they're outlaws, they're living in the forest, they're hungry, and it's time to eat. And they are, they're poor, starving people, and then this man walks out. They've kind of roasted the fatted calves, you know. And he walks out and he throws out his arms. He says, come to the table, everybody, and stuff yourselves. And for whatever reason, I don't know why, that became the way that we called people to dinner at our house. So, I mean, it could be, I don't know, chicken noodle soup and grilled cheese. It's like, come to the table, everybody, and stuff yourselves. And so that was a way that we just began calling people to dinner. And here, Jesus fills everyone Everyone is stuffed. Verse 20, they all ate and were satisfied. Verse 21 tells us there are 5,000 men here plus women and children. They're awful. They all have enough to eat plus 12 baskets left over. Jesus sees the crowd. He sees them hurting. He sees their hunger. He sees them with compassion. And he has the infinite capacity to meet any need. Jesus is far more able to meet our needs than we are able and willing to ask him to meet our needs. Yet Jesus often meets our needs in ways that are outside our design, doesn't he? We've got, Jesus, I know this is how you're going to intervene in my life. And Jesus says, well, I'm a good father and this is actually better for you. And we're like, Jesus, I got this figured out. Do it, do it this way. He often asks us to do things that seem impossible and then somehow impossibly accomplishes the impossible. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've been there or you're there right now. You face a material need, a bill, a financial situation, a house, an employment situation, and it is impossible. There's no way, I mean, there's a reason they call it the ends meeting. They don't. You know, they, they don't add up. There's this gap here, and Jesus, I need you to intervene this way. I don't know, maybe the lottery, I'll try that. And yet God has a different plan. A different way. And it's why Paul says, My God will supply all your need according to his riches and mercy through Christ Jesus. We've got a plan. God has an infinite capacity to meet our need, and he's always good, and he's always great, and he always does, and yet we're so quick to doubt him. Well, we sit here, and you know, there's material poverty, there's also relational poverty. We sit here, God, I'm lonely. God, I need friends. God, I need a spouse. 
God, my family, my family's messed up. I need love. They don't, they don't give me love like I need. And it's true, we experience this, this gap in our lives. We need a sense of love and a sense of belonging, a sense of security, and these things can't give it to us. Yet we need to learn what Paul says in Philippians 4, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Paul said that while he's rotting in a Roman prison. You see, God has an infinite capacity to meet our need, but he often meets it in ways that we can't see and don't anticipate. I mean, no matter what your need is, brother or sister, you can safely trust Jesus. You can trust the compassionate care of a good shepherd, a good savior, even when he's meeting your need in a way that it feels like he shouldn't. If you find Jesus, you find true pleasure, true satisfaction, true contentment. In finding Jesus, you will find that God always meets your needs, even when you find in the end that your true need is one that you didn't even know you had. And if you're here without knowing Jesus, your greatest need is to know that Jesus is a good Savior who will rescue anyone from sin, who died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin and rose again so that sin would have no power over you and you can share eternal life with him one day in heaven. Would you turn from your sin and run in faith and trust him? All who turn to him in faith find forgiveness their greatest need met at the cross. Let's take a few moments now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk to God and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.